again, it's great to have everyone out this morning as we come together to worship the, uh, the only true and living God. It's truly grateful to have our visitors. It's always good to see close friends. And when they're brethren, it just brings joy to our heart. And so we are all very joyous to have y'all here this morning. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to take a look at probably it's going to be a series. So I went ahead and put part one, but it's to take a stand part one. As Sean had read earlier this morning in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua is taking a stand. And he is saying that him and his household will serve the God, will serve the Lord, whether they choose to or not. He's not going to go with popular decision, but he's going to go with what he feels is the right thing to do. And so, in point one this morning, we're going to look at how to serve him. How are we to serve the Lord? In order to be able to take that stand, we have to meet these um, credentials in order to stand for the Lord. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And so he's telling them how they are to be able to serve the Lord. The first thing being, he said, was in sincerity. And so when we look at this word in sincerity... You may think with the right attitude. That's, that's what came with a sincere heart. That's what came to my mind. Um, as in John chapter 4, verse 24, as we're going to look at later, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, right? And so it's with that right attitude. But when I went and looked up the Hebrew word for sincerity, I came up with a little something different. It comes from the Hebrew word, tamium. And it's entire, also integrity, truth, without blemish, complete, full, perfect, sincerely, sound, without spot, undefiled, uprightly, whole. Well, in order for us to serve God, would it not make sense that we would have to be in a right covenant relationship with him? Not saying that we have to be sinlessly perfect, but that we should be without blemish or spot. And so that's referring to having our sins forgiven. In John chapter 4, verse 23, <clears throat> Jesus is speaking to the lady at the well, and he says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship them. And so we have to be true <coughs> worshipers of God. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, when Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, he says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And so what is he talking about here? He's not talking about the fleshly circumcision. It's the spiritual circumcision. Notice he says in the spirit and no confidence in the flesh. And so he's dealing with spiritual circumcision. In order to worship God or serve God, we must have a spiritual circumcision and have our sins forgiven. We have to be without blemish. We have to have that sincerity. 
as Joshua said. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, when Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, he says, In whom you also are in whom also ye are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so we are circumcised without hands. And so what does this mean? Well, our sins were taken away, and when did this happen? The circumcision of Christ, the circumcised that Paul spoke to of in the letter to the Philippians, that's what he's referring to. And so it's the circumcision of Christ. And so we can see in verse 12, who did it without the hands? We are buried with him in baptism, wherein also we are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And so that circumcision that takes place in baptism is done without hands because we have the faith that God did it. When one is baptized, one has their sins taken away. That tells us that in verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, have he quickened or made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so, in order to be, uh, to be able to worship God in spirit, you have to be circumcised. Well, you have, and then Joshua said you had to be without blemish, without sins. And so we're seeing that these are being taken place at the same time. Point number two was that he said in sincerity and in truth. Well, how do we know what truth is? In John chapter 17, verse 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so the word of God is our biblical standard for what is acceptable to God. In John chapter 4, verse 24, the verse I had alluded to earlier, Jesus says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so that is our biblical standard. We have to do what God ordains us to do. And so the whole word of God is truth. Are we to practice the Old Testament and the New Testament, the law of Moses and the law of Christ? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when Paul is writing to the young preacher Timothy, he says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman need not be ashamed, what? Rightly dividing the word of truth. And so you would have to rightly divide the word of truth. That's how we can only be approved to God. Well, we'll go back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, because it's going to tell us whether the law of Moses is still standing or not. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And so what ordinances is he referring to? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, when Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments containing ordinances to, for, to making himself a twain, one new man, and so making peace. And so the law of Moses is what he's referring to there. That word abolished, it comes from the Greek word katerigio, and I'm just going to pull out a few words, but it means to cease, do away, make void. And so the law of Moses was made void. 
In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, when Paul is writing to the church at Rome, he says, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And so we're dead, they were dead to the law of Moses, but they were married to a new law, and the law belonged to Christ, because it says, even to him who was raised from the dead. Remember, the law of Moses was nailed to the cross by the body of Christ. We should be, but not all, will be married under a new law. Because it's because Paul says, ye should be married to another law. And so, in this day and time, the law of Moses is of none effect. It's void. But there will be many in this world today that will not be married to that new law because they don't enter into that covenant relationship with God. When we obey his gospel, that is Christ, we were bound to the law of Christ. As we had taken the Lord's Supper this morning and we took of the cup, well, that day when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper that he was having there, that feast of the Passover, in Matthew chapter 26 and 27, uh, verses 27 and 28. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so his blood, that's what it represents. And so what is his blood going to be? Well, point one is the blood is of the New Testament. Point two is it's for the remission of sins. And part three that we get from that, that it's for many, but not all. Just as... Uh, Paul had said he should be married to that new law. Not everyone will be. And so it's that blood of the New Testament. What, what does that mean? In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 18, the writer says, Whereupon neither the first testament, talking about the law of Moses, was dedicated without blood. And so how was the old law dedicated with blood? He tells us in verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled what? Both the blood book and all the people. So he sprinkled the law and the people with the blood. In Exodus chapter 24 verse 8. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. And so that's talking again about the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, as it's often referred to. And so it's the blood of the covenant. Well, that's what Jesus was saying. This is the blood of the New Testament. After hearing, did they agree to obey the covenant? In Exodus 24, verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. And so they were in agreement. They were going to obey the covenant of God, and now they were getting ready to enter into that covenant with the Lord. And that's when they entered when he sprinkled them with the blood. They heard, and then they came in contact with the blood. How about today? 
In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so, what are we to do? We are to read the law. We are to teach the law of Christ. And then that obedience is through baptism, being baptized. And then we are to observe. Remember, they said that all the things that you say and that you say we will observe to do, that is that continual obedience. That is uh, to continue to teach the things that Christ has told us to command. And so it's a continual obedience to God. It sounds familiar to what they were told in the Old Testament. However, they came in contact with the blood at obedience when they said all these things will we do. Do we today? But that brings us to the second thing that Jesus said that, that day in the upper chamber when he said it was for the blood for the remission of sins. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 when John's writing there, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Earlier we saw that our sins were taken away with our spiritual circumcision, occurring at what event? That was baptism. Now we see it as the blood of Christ that washes away our sins. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, when Paul is retelling his account of being converted to Christ, and Ananias is speaking here, and he says, And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling in the name of the Lord. This is taking place at baptism when our sins are washed away. They use the words, wash away thy sins. The blood of Christ washes away our sins. And then he said it was shed for many. And why not all? In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Well, see, there's only one gospel of Christ. But there's those that teach contrary to that gospel. They pervert the word of God. And so they will not obey the teachings of Christ, but will be obeying the teaching of men. There are very many perversions of the gospel. In Luke chapter 8, verse 11. Now, this is talking about the, the parable of the sower of the seed. And then when he's telling, he's saying, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And so we are to sow the seed. We are to plant the word of God. We are to preach his gospel. And earlier we noticed we are to bind ourselves to the New Testament or the law of Christ. And so if we teach only the law of Christ, then we should only obey the same teachings. If you plant the seed, it's just as it, it tells us in the Bible, if you plant a watermelon seed, uh, you're going to get a watermelon seed. Um, course they don't say watermelon because it's not in the bible but a bad example but you're gonna whatever you plant if we plant the word of god the only thing that comes from this word of god is a christian that's the only thing that should be coming from a christian 
Those, there are those that teach baptism does not save us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter writes, The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of flesh, but an answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the inspired Peter said baptism saved them. Notice the words, the answer of a good conscience towards God. We'll remember in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, when Paul was writing to those ones in Colossae, he said, buried with him in baptism, wherein also he risen with him through what? The faith. It's that answer of a good conscience. The face of the operation of God. It's because we, have, we, we are to have faith that when we are baptized correctly, our past sins are forgiven completely. And then what assurance do we have from God? He lists it twice. He put it in 1 Peter 3 and he puts it in Colossians 2. God was able to raise Christ from the dead. That's our assurance that when we go into the baptism waters, our sins are forgiven completely, past sins. <clears throat> Mark writes it this way in Mark 16, verse 16, when Jesus is speaking. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Believe. All you said we will do. Remember that's what the what the um, Israelites said in the Old Testament. All you said we will do. And then they were they obeyed. Well, he's saying to be baptized. Then it's uh, we notice that the blood is what saves us from our sins. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47. On the day of Pentecost, when the church had its beginning, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so the saved were added to his church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, then they that gladly received his word, talking about Peter and the other apostles, but Peter being the, the main speaker that day, were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And so they believed. They received his word and they believed it. They were baptized and then they were added. Well, we already see that the added was saved and so they were saved. Why was the blood only shed for many and not all? In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul is speaking there to the elders at Ephesus, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Notice he purchased the church with his blood. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 when Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus he says for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. That we we need to know what that body is, and so um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And so to me, we would already see the connection there. If he's the Savior of the body, and then he gave himself on the cross for the church, the body and the church are one and the same. 
Notice the singularity of the church, and it doesn't say that he gave himself for them. He says he gave himself for it. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, in one hope of your calling. And so he's telling us that there's only one body. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, this will sum it all up. If there's any doubt or not enough clarity in it, it's repeated time and time again. And have put all things under his feet. God had put all things under Christ's feet and gave him, Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so the church and the body are one and the same. Paul said there's only one body. Jesus said that he died for the body of Christ. It's telling us that the word of God, through the word of God, that he purchased that one church with his blood. He is the savior of the one church. And this is the reason why we're going, to, we're going to serve him in sincerity and truth. It's because of our fear for God. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now therefore fear to God, uh, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away all the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. That word fear there, it comes from the Hebrew word yeri. It means to revere, to show reverence. And so the only way that we can show reverence to God is by serving him in sincerity. Well, the only way that we can really be sincerely, uh, even if we were looking at it from the point that we want to have sincere hearts towards God, we can't do that if we're not in that right covenant relationship with God. In John chapter 4, verse 23, when Jesus is speaking to, again to that lady at the well, he says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. But notice this, For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God in his word tells us what he likes and requires. It doesn't matter what we like. We are worshiping him, not us. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul's giving the warning to Timothy when he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, the word of God. But after their own lusts, well, look what they're going to do. They shall heap to themselves teachers. And so they're going to go find those that will teach the things they want to hear, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned on to fables. And so they're going to leave the word of God. There are many today that want to please themselves and not God and worship Him vainly. Finding a church and not the church. Being entertained instead of seeking His approval. Telling God the conditions of their salvation instead of obeying what He has authorized or commanded us to do. And so there's many today that want to please themselves and not God. And so in order to take a stand for God, you have to be in a right covenant relationship with God. And so that's why I had to start with the basis, uh, uh, with the plan of salvation, is to show you that you have to be in that right covenant with God in order to be pleasing to Him. And that's the only way that you can take a stand for Him from that day forward. And so those that say that they want to please themselves and not God, they are truly worshiping Him and, uh, vainly. Uh, again, finding a church and not the church. 
being in a state of sin is seeking his approval. Telling God the conditions of their salvation instead of obeying the ones he set forth. I think I was supposed to take that other statement out. But um, I'm not following this. And so where is that fear? Where is that reverence that Joshua told the Israelites on that day to fear God and to uh, serve him in sincerity and in truth? In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so we are to fear God and to keep his commandments. We are to show God his reverence, and by keeping his commandments, we are doing that. Why? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And so we know that God has appointed that day, that's what we're told, when he will judge every man according to his works, whether that be good or evil. And so this is why we fear God and keep his commandments. And so I ask the question today, before you can stand for God, have you obeyed his gospel? If not, why? Because your mother and father belong to a certain church? Well, Look what Joshua, in Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And so he was telling them, leave your old ways, the ways that are in vain, and you come to the true, one true and living God. Their ancestors didn't serve God and Joshua's telling them to start. Take a stand. Or perhaps a loved one has passed and by obeying you are conceding they are lost. In Luke chapter 16 verses 27 and 28. This is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man, he's in torment. And then he's talking to Abraham and he says, Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And so the rich man did not want his loved ones coming into torment. And so he's pleading with Abraham. In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, Peter tells them on that day, and with many other words, he testify and exhort, say, save yourselves from this onward generation. It doesn't matter... Um, what perhaps loved ones had done. It doesn't matter perhaps um, that it's just because we were born a Catholic. As I have told y'all many times, I was born a Catholic. And then we were a Baptist. And we were a Methodist. It all contradicted this great book. When I found the truth, I've stuck to the truth. I've loved the truth since I found the truth. And I am so thankful for those that have taught me the way. I'm saddened because there are people that have passed away in my life that I cannot touch. But we should make it a goal. We should take it and make a stand from this day forward to always be going to the lost, to preach the great word of God so that they too can have that hope of heaven. And then I've been told when trying to teach others that I've been wet. They do not see uh, what the act of baptism truly is. If, the, if it's just getting wet, then why in Acts chapter 19 did Paul rebaptize them correctly? 
There's more to baptism than just getting wet. It, as Peter has said, it's not because of the filth of the flesh. It's not because we need to take a bath. It's because we come in contact with that great uh, blood of Jesus Christ. That we are not counting the blood that he shed on the cross unworthy. And so if there's any today that have not obeyed the gospel of Christ, we invite you to do so. As, as the plan of salvation has been in effect for almost 2,000 years and it starts by hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Because without hearing the word of God, we cannot have faith. And without faith, we cannot please him. Hebrews 11, 6. Our faith is, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Once we have the knowledge that Jesus Christ died on our behalf and that it was because of our unrighteous living that he had to do so, it should cause one to want to change their life. And that's where repentance comes in. Jesus tells us without repentance that we will perish, just as the rich man was doing in that torment, that we will perish. He said in Luke 13, 3 and 5, I tell you, nay, except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And he's referring back to the awful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we do not want to perish in that everlasting fire. And then we must confess, just as the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That same uh, confession that Peter made in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. It is the confession made unto salvation, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then we must allow someone to immerse us, that is to bury us in the baptism waters, that we come raised up as a new creation, that is, that we are made alive with Christ as we have seen, that we have faith in the operation that took place in the baptism waters, that our old man was taken away, that man of sin. And then we must live faithful until death, just as the Israelites said they were going to do when they said we will continue to observe. Well, see, God was not pleased with the Israelites, and many times he destroyed them in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness. And then we're going to see, as we study the Old Testament, how that he took them into captivity many, many times because of their unfaithfulness unto God. And so we are told as long as we're faithful to him that we will receive that crown of life, Revelation 2.10. Or perhaps we have obeyed, but we have slipped along the way and that we just need prayers of the church. We need to be restored in that right covenant relationship. If we can help you in either way, if you'll come to the front as together we stand and sing the song of the invitation.